Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, filthy humans. Drew, the creator of Human Begone here. Yes, we are still working on season 1.5, but in the meantime, we thought you might find this interesting. It's an interview I got to do with the illustrious W. Keith Timms on his wonderful podcast, The First Episode Of. In this interview, Keith and I talk about the making of Human Begone. We touch on our feelings about AI, using reality shows as a sonic template, slaying our personal dragons, and also just how the actors absolutely kill it in every episode. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hope you enjoy. And welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Human Begone. After winning the Singularity Wars against the humans, life is good for us robots. Now we have jobs, homes, and families. Morning, Gif. Morning, Dust. But there's still the occasional pesky human infestation. <laughs> Luckily, there's Human Be Gone. Ethical human relocation. A sci-fi comedy created by Drew Froman. Human Begone presents itself as a reality show set in the near future. Robots have taken over the world and now live a suburban life in Droidston, Nanotoba. But there's still the problem of human infestation. We follow a crew of emotionally unstable robots as they capture stray humans and ethically relocate them to Garbage Island. The first episode, Dinger Danger, introduces us to the Human Begone crew the needy Kit, owner of the business, the attention-seeking Hundo, and the arrogant Influx. The crew is called in to deal with an infestation of humans at celebrity robot Eight Blanchett's house. But when Eight starts flirting with Hundo, Kit becomes jealous. Human Begone is part of the Fable and Folly network. Froman works in Toronto at Sound Studio Tattoo, but I spoke with him remotely while he was away in Mexico. Tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist or creative type. I'm a, definitely a sort of a writer at the core. I kind of think of everything in sort of terms of that. 
what I do to pay the rent is I'm a I'm an audio director at this uh, lovely production studio called Tattoo Sound and Music up in Toronto. Mostly commercials. I've I've done a couple of animated series, which were a lot of fun. Fair bit of podcasts, but in my spare time, I'm constantly writing, coming up with ideas. I've spent several years working with animators trying to make things which didn't quite pan out. I I wrote an indie comic and drew it myself. Oh wow. Yeah, and then and then uh, so I'm constantly, constantly just sort of coming up with ideas and then not following through properly, <laughs> which is a whole thing we'll get into once we start talking about human McGon. I guarantee it. Well, it sounds like you're a bit of a Renaissance man. You you do visual art and you do sound and you do writing. Well, yeah, well, it's so funny. I originally went to art college. I grew up in a very small town. I went to art college. I was going to draw comics. I was convinced I was going to draw Marvel comics. Bernie Wrightson was one of my heroes. All those guys, John Romita Jr., you know, all that kind of stuff. And and then I found out I wasn't nearly as good or had the passion for it. Like a couple of years into art college, it was like, oh, like I was dropping further and further in the class because I'm watching the guys and gals who excelled and like they could not do it. They were never off. And I was like, I'm not that passionate about, about it like that. So I kind of drank a lot for a year. And then I, I, then I discovered this advertising class, which was sort of a window into writing. And that was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And then I kind of got sucked into advertising and turned sort of and started writing, found my passion into it there and was a very bad art director, visual side, and so bad at it that I, that I ended up being a writer. And then <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I got sucked into the audio side. I fell in love with the audio side because it's so intensely visual plus imagination from there trying to push into just sort of pure artistic expression, trying to do people's ideas where the job isn't to persuade rather it's just to delight. What do you mean that audio is a visual medium? There's something about audio. If it's done right, then I can imagine everything. I can I can totally imagine the the horses. I can imagine the stormy skies, the mud on the ground. I can imagine all that stuff. I mean, I was a fan of the old time radio stuff, even as a kid. Sure, you know the shadow and all that kind of stuff. When I think about the audio medium, I I do think of it as kind of visual because of the theater of the mind factor, right? Mm -hmm. That when you take away one of the senses, sight specifically here, then that lets the viewer imagine themselves into whatever they're hearing. I should say the listener in this case, because it's the listener that's doing the work. It becomes really personal to the listener that they fill in the gaps with what they imagine the the world should be based on the cues that you're giving them. And to me, that makes audio drama this very intimate kind of personal medium. Absolutely. It's one of the things we haven't gotten into the show, but what the what the hell? When we were looking at, well, how do we market this thing? Everyone wants to know what the robots look like. But that's part of the the fun of this. I don't want to show them. I'm hoping that people picture them and picture them in all sorts of completely different ways. Yeah. I, the the voice actors, of course, have a lot to do with that, too. I mean, the writing as well. Yeah. But, you know, Hundo has a voice. She has this, you know, party girl um, kind of self-involved um, a way of of talking that's not just from the writing, but also from the the actor portraying her, um, yeah. and that invariably colors how I personally see her in my mind. 
Look, Hundo, that's me, doesn't leak herself in anyone's basmati rice bed. What Hundo does is go to the club. Hundo rolls past the lineup because Hundo knows the owner and the owner knows Hundo. So Hundo does a tri-tube of neon. Hundo hooks up with two orgasmatrons, maybe also named Hundo. I don't know, because I kind of blacked out at that point. And then I wake up in a basmati rice bed and Hundo is at work and on time. So since, since we're talking about the show, why don't you just tell me a little bit about Human Be Gone in your own words? Well, it's an audio comedy that's uh, it's set in the future, hopefully not too near the future, <laughs> but it's set in the future where the humans and the, and the machines have had a, some, the singularity wars. They've had this, this war, this Terminator-style war, and the robots won. It took like 20 minutes, I imagine, like really <laughs> honestly. And, and then so the, the robots have now built this sort of suburban society. They have a city and suburbs, and they have a class system. And but the problem is that the several of the few humans that are left are these reduced to basically raccoons. They're basically the raccoons in the robot city of Droidston. So we follow this crew, this blue-collar crew of robots who have this little company called Human Be Gone, and they're a pest control firm. And so like in a reality show like Dog the Bounty Hunter, Pawn Stars, and all that, we follow this crew as they go do jobs, capturing these pesky humans and then ethically relocating them. What's the genesis for this story for you? It was, it's actually several years. I had this original idea way back and I want to say 2018 was the first time I was like, I, honestly, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was terror. <laughs> AI. It was just like, what, what? I, I always found it in sci-fi stuff that when it comes to robots and AI is that the, we're adorable in how we think that humans are going to somehow square up to the robots in any fashion. And, and the more I was thinking about it, it's like, I don't know that that's the case. I mean, they may not even care that we exist. Like that just might be just us projecting, thinking that we're important. We may not be. And so thinking about that was like, oh, so what if we were raccoons? What if we, I'm in Toronto. So if anyone listening from Toronto, they'll know what I'm talking about. Like raccoons <laughs> okay. in Toronto is the whole thing. So it was like, what if the humans were raccoons? Okay, that's really interesting. And then the other thing that made it interesting to me was thinking, well, if these machines become self-aware and they get hit with all the neuroses we do, like, what are they going to do? Because we all know that intelligence is no protection against denial or any of these neuroses. So even if they're hyperintelligent, they might end up, it'd be kind of hilarious to think that they'll be as ridiculously human and flawed and silly and and, and drug-addled as we are. Yeah. So all those kind of layers became like, oh, this could be really interesting. I originally thought of it as maybe almost like a taxi. Remember Taxi, that show? I do, yeah. Kind yeah. of like that. Sort of like eh, a bunch of working stiffs, sort of a workplace comedy, like a, a blue collar of the office, yeah. But, okay, so how is the narrator? How does that work? And I didn't know, quite know how that was going to work in audio. And then it was the reality show thing. I forget how, but that popped up. I was like, oh, that's the delivery system for exposition. Now, and then realizing it's that, but it's also, it's the perfect sort of medium for neuroses, right? Reality right. shows, that's all they are is a showcase of people's insecurities. And it's like, yeah. oh, right. The characters will be the unreliable narrators. I couldn't find a podcast that sounded anything like it. I later came to find out why, but at the time it was like, oh my God, this is, this is going to be sonically unique too. Why are reality shows kind of a, they're not common in the audio drama space. 
Well, as I came to find out, it's because they're really production heavy. Yeah. Like, then I was like, oh, okay, so I'm writing this, tickety-tack, right, right, right. And, oh, my God, the, annou- the announcers and characters are going to tell us what's going on. I'm so clever that this is working. You know, and then the script, it's easy to type in SFX, that, that, that. And I, and I thought, <laughs> oh, this is going to sound amazing. But it was the music that was a big surprise to me when we really got into it. It was like, there's a new music cue in a reality show every time somebody says something. I do want to say that it's one of the things that I think really nails the feeling of a reality show in Human Be Gone is that you have these music cues that change every time you change perspective, change narrators, or change the emotional tone of the scene. To me, as soon as I heard that, I was like, I'm watching a reality show. Oh my gosh, algorithm ain't Blanchett. This is Kit from Human Be Gone. We spoke on the comms earlier. Oh, yes, I can hear you. I'll be liaising with you remotely today. OMG, why I am such a huge fan. Yeah. Holly Node stars are usually the worst clients, but Eight Blanchett was kind of cool. Not like Seven Heart. Total squag. Even if I'm not physically at the job site, I think it's important for me to be that first line of contact with the client. Especially today, because Hundo's in such a vulnerable state emotionally right now. And, well, did you see her in four random luck? The composer, Oliver Wickham, as it turns out, was absolutely perfect for this. Not only because he's super, super talented, he's really smart. And as you know, as you could see in this thing, you have to be able to kind of have a handle on all these different genres. And it's like, he can nail all that. But the other thing is, as it turns out, I didn't know this, and he's a total reality show. Like, he loves that trash. Like, he's all about inked and Vanderpump rules and all that. That's a huge one. Like, already knowing the vibe and already writing for it. You know, and I think that speaks to one of the powers of audio drama, too, is that the sonic template, as you said, for a reality show really sells it in Human Be Gone. And that tells me that we are trained to hear things in certain ways and that when those cues are met, it's a great way to instantly bring an audience into a particular space. As we were writing and then editing and then go back and all that kind of stuff and dialogue editing, especially in the dialogue editing, it really became apparent that the closer you hew to reality show, the funnier everything got. Writing a fake reality show is you kind of have to do a lot of bad writing. It has to be really exposition heavy. And then you have to double your things. You're not, you're being intentionally unsubtle with your jokes. And then with the music, you go, like, it's it's against all your instincts of being clever, if you know what I mean. Let's talk a little bit about the first episode, which is called Dinger Danger. And uh, we get to meet the crew, which is... Um, three of these robots that work for Human Be Gone. We got Kit, who is the owner of the business. He inherited that business from his father, and he is desperate for approval and success. Uh, that's kind of one of his core motivations. He just he wants to be loved and liked and and seen as a success. Then we have Hundo, who is their catching specialist. She's kind of a party girl. She's very self-involved. She thinks of herself as a great musician, even though she's not. You actually talk about how the robots are ranked according to their intelligence. And, you know, Hundo is the like the lowest intelligence rank of the trio. She used to date Kit. So there's some tension there. 
Uh, then we have Influx, who is the smartest, but he's their tech specialist. He's also a, he's a morphing vehicle. He can change into whatever kind of vehicle they need for a particular show. Influx, because he thinks he's so smart, he's kind of above it all. He thinks he's smarter than everyone else, but he's also a big fan of like conspiracy theories and, and that kind of thing. None of these robots are particularly smart, despite their designation, <laughs> or self-aware or empathic, right? They're all really kind of selfish in many different ways. Talk to me about your choice of writing characters like this. Well, that came back to the theme we were talking about before of asking the question, what would happen to machines once they became self-aware? And what if they just got blindsided by the big questions of why are we here what are we about? What's my purpose? And it, I thought it was really funny to think that even though they're hyper, hyper intelligent, they'll blast right past the human race as far as that. But emotional intelligence, this will be their first crack at it. So mm, they might just yeah. be completely neurotic messes. In fact, it might be worse because of their advanced intelligence. Um, so it was really, so then it became, <laughs> if that's the case, then what, what are the, core insecurities of each of your three main characters. And I kind of built them that way. Like what you said, Kit's insecurity is desperate, this desperate need to be liked, to be thought of as the, you know, the uh, morally good one. Yeah. Hundo is desperate for attention and adulation. And so is, is overcompensates that way. And then Influx thinks he's too smart for emotion, which of course makes him the most vulnerable to any and all sort of insecurities. That's such a fun thing to do just to make the most insecure people. And then the reality show format is so much fun because then every time they narrate something, you try to make it as unreliable a narration as possible because it's, it's filtered through their neurosis. Yeah. Because of the format of, of a reality show, you get this kind of instant gratification of we get to see something happen and then we immediately cut to one robot's viewpoint on it and then another robot comments and that's completely different. And not only do we get some humor out of that, but we also get insight into the characters themselves as to what their needs and drives are. Actually, at first I was toying with the idea of having a narrator, you know, like that's a thing that reality shows have to decide off the top. Do they have a narrator? And at first I, I was going to have that like in Kitchen Nightmares, you know, things are getting busy and, you know, Janice is uh, on her phone more than in the back or whatever. Right. But right. it seemed to me that every moment you can try to make the narration be a character moment. This is about there. I knew this. So. One of the other things that became apparent was that we are humans taking this in and all we want to know about are the humans. We don't care about the robots. I realized uh, relatively early on that, oh, making the robots human is super important. And this thing only lives past a few episodes if people actually get to like or at least laugh at or with the robots. But mm. everyone, I mean, I'm seeing it on social media. Everyone's like sad for poo-poo, right? Like they're worried about the humans. They want to know. I knew that every episode we had to deal with the humans in some fashion. And it couldn't just be the three robots talking for, th right. for 30 minutes. Yeah. We hone in on the human in any story and latch onto that. And part of the challenge of this show, what I wanted to do was like, no, the humans aren't the main character at all. Like at all. It's a really interesting challenge because everyone's like, yeah, but what are the humans doing? It's like, it doesn't matter what they're doing. That's the point of this show. Right. 
to a certain extent, I agree. I don't necessarily am interested, invested in the story of what the humans are up to. But man, it's hard not to feel empathic <laughs> when um, Hundo is ripping their arms off <laughs> in the first episode, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard. They're, they're <laughs> dropping them at Garbage Island. That's like that's where the humans live. Wait, but wait, I'm a human. I don't want my arms ripped off, right? Yeah. It's a challenging kind of humor. It's really kind of a dark humor kind of thing. It's definitely played for laughs in the show, but it's pretty, you know, it's pretty extreme. And it's these these robots really don't care about the humans at all. E, you know, even Kit, who in the first episode adopts a human poo-poo, his empathy for the human extends really only to his own sense of self-gratification. <laughs> you know, like yes, thank you. That's exactly, I'm going to steal how you just said that. That's, I try not to do any proselytizing or anything. I try to just explore the idea and, and let those kind of satire things come through. But I imagine Kit looks at humans the way human race would look at dolphins or lobsters, where we know they have a language and empathy and feelings, but somehow we're like, meh, hey, Timmy, go pick out the lobster to boil alive. Like, it's crazy. Many of these episodes are job of the week. The crew is sent to a particular location where they have to deal with an infestation. And usually the conflict comes not so much from the infestation, but from arguing among the crew or with the person who hired them for the job. In the first episode, they're, they're hired by celebrity robot actor 8 Blanchett. We're going to talk about your puns later. Um, <laughs> 8 Blanchett has an infestation of humans in her house, but the conflict really comes because... Eight begins to flirt with Hundo on the job, and Kit becomes jealous of that. At the end of the episode, Kit ends up adopting one of the humans as a pet. Talk to me about this structure that you've sort of set up here of the job of the week. I was terrified of doing long form writing. I always said I could, and I wrote lots of pitches and a couple of short pilot things, but to really tackle it, it was like, oh my gosh. So the the hard structure of a job of the week I really liked. And then I just slowly got better and better and expanded on the characters. I brainstormed jobs and then asked myself, which of these jobs really pulls at the insecurities of which of the robots? So hopefully a job does both. Hopefully it's an interesting job to, uh, you know, the process by which you, you know, capture the humans is interesting. But hopefully also the nature of whoever the client is or something about the job also, you know, gets at Hundo's deepest insecurities or influxes or kits or all of them. You include fake commercials. Full disclosure, you did hire me to do a voice for you for one of those commercials. Yes. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yes. But, uh, man, some of these are really funny. Um <laughs> Talk to me about why you wanted to include fake commercials in your show. It just felt it was a really great way of doing world building. One of the things about the world is is there's a class struggle. It's one of my things that I, I rail on about and get angry about. For me, I had the robots or the blue collar, and then the algorithms are, are the rich, powerful bastards. So <laughs> more often than not, the customers, the people who are calling are rich algorithms with big estates. There's this definite divide between the robots and the algorithms. And then the commercials became a really great way. I have an advertising background. So then I got to show, oh, these are ads for algorithms. And here's what algorithms worry about in this world. And then here's what robots worry about and how the algorithms who are paying for the ads ostensibly are pushing the buttons of the robots to make them work harder and not think. And mm. 
So I got to use all my propaganda muscles, all my anger at advertising and use all those tools, you know, and everyone at the studio as well. They know they've written a billion jingles or whatever. So we got to weaponize all that stuff and make, yeah, the, I mean, I, I get it a lot. People go, the commercials are great. It's like, ah, uh, that sounds awesome. I hope that's good. But we know how to make commercials. I'm hoping that the rest of it is also good, you know? <laughs> You're not one of the lazy robots. You work hard, play hard, and work hard. That's why you reach for Energex. Energex contains photons, positrons, and kick-ass trons, so you can work all night. Energex for real robots, a member of the Red 4 family of products. And so many puns. So <laughs> many yeah. puns yeah. throughout the entire show. I, I love them. Why puns? What attracts you to those? It was part of the world building is trying to figure out what are the rules of this of this place? How do I continually uh, uh, show that this is a robot place? The puns help us just kind of grow the grow a robot world. Yeah. And then and then you just get to have these in jokes. Earlier on, you said that the genesis for this show came because you were terrified <laughs> of the future with AI. What is your relationship with technology? Are, are you still terrified? Are you still afraid of the future? Oh, 100%. I'm, I'm, I'm Hungarian. And so fear is like a baseline, you know, fear and anger. <laughs> so yeah, in a way, it's no, you know what, it's not the technology. It's not the technology. It's I, I would, I wish I had more faith in our society's ability to roll with it and figure out how to get it back to working for humans in general, and not for the system. Mm. I my worry is that it will take a generation or two for society to figure out what to do with this stuff. And yeah. in the meantime, that it's going to be really tough on a lot of people before we figure that out. I mean, this is what we do, right? This is what we do as humans is we come up with more and more amazing things, which is fantastic. And if we can use it, the promise way back in the 1900s was that we were all going to, you know, the r robots were going to make everything and we were all going to just play guitar all day which is technically still possible. It was always possible. Given how humanity is treated in the show, what is your feeling about the human condition and about humanity? We can be so intelligent by ourselves, uh, singularly. But mm. in, when we get into groups, we just get so goddamn stupid. And I'm not sure that we're any smarter than like wolves or deer. And I think we're just, re we're acting just like, well, like raccoons in Toronto, they just, they have no predators. So they're just making millions, millions more until at some point there's going to, you know, they'll hit a peak and then disease will wipe out half of them and then they'll just keep doing it again. But, you know, as I'm thinking about this more and more, there's not going to be any sort of war with the AI. I wonder if humanity will just go and say to the AI, can you tell us what to do? Maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah. you can be right. God. Yeah. You know, I could totally see that happening where they were like, Oh, yeah. Well, you have to get rid of this. OK. I don't know. <laughs> you know, since we're talking about insecurities and so forth, um, what do you struggle with? Well, there's a whole lot of imposter syndrome and, and depression, mm -hmm. uh, all those things. And, and then as it relates to uh, working on stuff creatively at any and all points, I can convince myself that it's not worth it. It's stupid. It's a waste of time. There's other things I could be doing. I could be spending time with my wife or with family or with friends or just getting outside. I can, I, my brain can figure out a million reasons not to pursue 
an idea and to, and to do the work on it. My hard drive is full of all sorts of ideas. Some are mm-hmm. really, really good ideas. Lots of them are crap ideas, like all of us, you know. Uh, but sure. some of them were worth were worth chasing down and really putting the time in and 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 finishing it. You know, as, as I got older and older, it's like, well, you better do something. You better finish <laughs> something. You know that that comic I mentioned was was a thing that I wrote it as an indie comic because then I could control how, if it was going to get made. I didn't have to rely on anyone else. I knew at least I could get the thing made. It's a lot of work and did it. And then, but then I, I sort of quit halfway through that too. So this one, I was resolved. It was a good idea and I knew it was a good idea. So I was like, you will not let this one fall. You will make this somehow, some way. How do you measure success? Are the little successes, definitely these little things you see when a, when a stranger on Reddit raves about it. That's pretty amazing because once you get past your family and friends, right? You're like, yeah, your family and friends, they'll be nice enough. And, and that's sure. wonderful too. But, you know, we all have family and friends. And But when a stranger says it, that's pretty gratifying. That's pretty wonderful. And that's a great thing to kind of go back and go through my Apple podcast reviews. It's like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I, so I try to remember that and not, not let my brain say, yeah, but, yeah, but. And then when folks, when you say you like it, you know, when other creators I really respect and admire say, that's a whole other drug. When someone you respect says, oh, I get it. Because then they, they really understand what you did. What are some lessons that you have learned about creating audio drama that you could share with people who might want to create their own? Writing for audio, I think it's really important to think about where you are in the space. Actually, Hannah on Madness of Chartrilli, and she said something mm-hmm. really cool in one of her, in an article she wrote is, Good sound design is thinking about the space, mm. how you manage your space. And so even writing for it is that you have to really think about, okay, where am I? Doing this reality show type of putting music on almost every line or every few lines really made you think about, okay, what's the scene about? From whose point of view is it? And what are they feeling? And what is the music doing? Is the music having a laugh at the person? Or is it kids' feelings on the inside? Or are we just trying to build tension? Then writing scenes, do you really think about it? Okay, what is this? Is this a rising tension moment? Is this kids' internal tension? Or is this as just Hundo being a dum-dum? I found uh, dialogue editing and music editing really helped my writing. So what's next for Human Be Gone? How many episodes are you planning for season one? There's 11. So okay. it goes until, I think, April. But in the meantime, I'm also spending as much time as I can on the marketing side, trying to figure out how to get past this sort of a kind of sort of plateaued at a, a certain pretty small number. And I, I think in the community, folks know what Human Begone is about. And now it's trying to get outside of the audio drama community, hopefully, right. maybe, or, or maybe that still needs, I still need to get grow into there and kind of poke out of that. Hopefully I'm going on the assumption that this this show is awesome and has no ceiling, right? Which I think you kind of have to, and then just right. try to try things and then hopefully something pops. I shine my light down the vent shaft. There they are, huddled against each other in a corner, trembling in their own filth. So helpless and frightened. Hard to believe that not too long ago, these ugly little things used to rule the planet. Makes you think about the utter fragility of our existence. But at any point, any of us could Okay, let's scoop them and coop them. On it! Human Begone uses the structure and sound of reality TV to great effect. 
Fans of reality shows will instantly recognize the beats and rhythms of the genre. The satire of the show also shines, exaggerating our anxieties and flaws through its insecure characters and pun-filled world. You can listen to Human Be Gone on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more details. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Oh, hey, friends, it's me, your Dungeon Master, Russ Moore. You don't know me, but I'm going to introduce you to Dungeons and Dragons, where I play D&D with my friends, and, th- and they're going to become your friends because you're going to love us so much. I mean, maybe, maybe you won't love us, but we'll love you. Let me give you a taste of the show in 42 seconds. Let's go. You must have a, f- and a flask. He's anything. got a satchel. That's the most disappointed <laughs> way I've ever heard anyone say the word satchel. Cost. How much is a donkey cost? Russ, how much is a donkey cost? How much is the a question donkey everyone cost? wants to know. For one hour. It's concentration, so if you do another concentration spell. It's abjuration, you doink. It's concentration. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like exactly the sort of person you should probably tell your friends about. The kind that are there and say, like, weird, mysterious things and then just disappear? Yeah, that's why I'm telling oh, you. Okay. Also, he had three eyes. Oh! We're having this rager. I mean, Lich Astley and the Magic Magic Missiles is going to be playing later tonight. <laughs> is he ever going to give you up? <laughs> never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Orcus is going to rule all and he won't desert you. What else do I need to tell you? We're Dungeons & Dragons. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts or at DumbDragons.com. We can't wait to adventure! with you.